Full Scope, Human Longevity and Performance Podcast. We want you to become the most exceptional, high-performing version of yourself. And to facilitate this, we are giving away the Longevity Fundamentals Handbook absolutely free. This is a tremendous resource that will tell you the lifestyle behaviors and mindset that will lead to the best outcomes and longevity. To get this, go to our website, wondermedicine.com or fullscope.org, put in your email, and we will send you this amazing resource, the Longevity Fundamentals Handbook. It is July of 2021, and in the western United States and western Canada, we are experiencing an epic heat wave that is just unprecedented. In fact, Canada has recorded the highest temperature ever in that country at 49.6 degrees Celsius or 121.3 degrees Fahrenheit. This heat wave has sparked extensive wildfires and is leading to an unknown amount of deaths in these areas. Heat is a very serious issue, and the amount of heat waves appear to be getting more frequent and more severe. Unfortunately, this is probably our fault, people. And the most scary part... It's only July. We still have the rest of this month and August and September. When humans, other animals, plants, and really any living organism is exposed to heat, it can cause a number of problems. These can include local injuries, things like burns. But also they can include whole body manifestations. In today's episode of Full Scope, we're going to focus on those whole body issues, what I'm calling heat-related illnesses. Saddle up, tune in, this could save your or someone else's life someday. Alright, let's start by just defining some heat illnesses, and even before that, let's just define hyperthermia, and that just means elevated temperature, and we really define hyperthermia as a rise in temperature above the hypothalamic set point. And remember, the hypothalamus is the part of the brain that controls a number of important and interesting functions, but in this case, we're mostly interested in how it controls the body's uh, temperature. It is what sets our temperature, and the reason we can sometimes be put outside of that temperature can be due to impaired heat dissipation. So, for instance, if you were wearing too much clothing, if the environment is too hot, you know, if, if it's a certain temperature, your body doesn't let off heat into the environment. Instead, that environment starts to heat your body. And then also metabolic heat production. So this could be things like exercise, but it could also be things like infection or, or, or other bodily processes that are going to give off heat. And so that is hyperthermia, and hyperthermia can lead to a number of specific heat illnesses. And those are heat cramps. These are muscle cramps often associated with exercise, dehydration, and electrolyte deficiencies. 
You can get heat rash or miliaria rubra, which is essentially blocked eccrine sweat glands caused by heat. You can get heat edema, and this is swelling due to fluid pooling from vasodilation. So the veins are dilating, and people will typically get swelling in their feet, their ankles, and their hands. Every time I go on a big backpacking trip, at some point my hands always get so swollen. There's heat-related syncope, which syncope is, of course, a loss of consciousness. And generally these are benign, things like vasovagal reactions where because of the heat your heart is all of a sudden slowing down, your blood vessels are dilating, and the brain just doesn't get enough blood flow, and then you pass out. Sometimes it could be due to orthostasis. So if someone's very dehydrated and they don't have enough fluid and then they go from sitting to standing and that blood pools in their legs and they don't have enough reserve to get their blood perfusion and they pass out. But heat can also predispose uh, to things like cardiac arrhythmias, which are more scary and can cause syncope or loss of consciousness as well. And then kind of the whole body manifestations, and of course syncope is a whole body manifestation, but uh, heat exhaustion. This is defined as uh, essentially a mild to moderate illness caused by um, hyperthermia. And symptoms include thirst, weakness, discomfort, anxiety, dizziness, syncope, and an elevated temperature, usually below 40 degrees Celsius or 104 degrees Fahrenheit. And then finally, the most severe and scary manifestation of the heat or type of heat illness is heat stroke. This is a severe, life-threatening illness. Generally, core temperatures are quite elevated, greater than 40 degrees Celsius or 104 degrees Fahrenheit. And typically, you'll get all of the symptoms of heat exhaustion that we just mentioned, but also impaired coordination and mentation. So people might have, on top of being thirsty, weak, uncomfortable, anxious, they might have ataxia or trouble walking, uh, dysarthria or trouble speaking. They might be off balance or coordination might be bad. They could be confused. They could be agitated. Later on, they could develop seizures, coma, and then, of course, even death. Heat stroke is a scary thing, and we're going to focus a lot on heat stroke in this podcast today. All right, let's talk a little epidemiology. How common are these heat-related illnesses? Well, to be honest, I think heat cramps, heat rash, heat edema are all really, really common. Most people have those issues at some point in their life. Heat exhaustion also is very common. I think if you talk to most people who have ever done work or exercise outside, they've probably experienced some of the symptoms of heat exhaustion. On the other hand, heat stroke is relatively a lot more rare but also a lot more serious. For instance, in the United States, about 600 deaths occur every year from heat. Um, Heat stroke and and heat-related illness are a leading cause of death for high school athletes. And when people do get heat stroke, it's very dangerous. There's about a 10% mortality for people who develop heat stroke. So 10 10 out of 100 people with heat stroke will, will likely die. And if they become hypotensive, so if their blood pressure is low, 
that mortality rate jumps up to about 30%. Hot, 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 hot. Okay, what about cooling? How do our bodies actually cool? Well, we've got a few different mechanisms that we use. The first one is conduction. And conduction is simply the passive transfer of heat from hot to cold objects. And you can imagine, if the environment is cool, our bodies are going to give off heat readily and easily. But if we're in an environment that's hotter than our bodies, or even close to the same temperature, conduction is going to be shut off. The next way is convection. And convection is the transfer of heat to air or liquid from that air or liquid moving across the skin sur surface. Essentially that moving fluid, and remember air essentially acts like a fluid, grabs radiation and takes it away from our bodies, therefore cooling it. Now again, when it's hot out, that mechanism is going to be shut down. The next way that we cool ourselves is with just general radiation. So objects that are hot or warm will give off infrared radiation and thereby become more cool. And when we get hot, we do the same thing. However, when we're in a hot environment, our bodies are going to be absorbing infrared from other hot objects more so than we're able to give it off. And therefore, in a hot environment, radiation is going to be shut off as well. And so, the final way that we really get rid of heat is via evaporation. And essentially, we sweat, and then the energy that it takes to turn that sweat into a gas essentially cools our body. And when you're in a hot environment, and conduction, radiation, and convection all get turned off, that evaporation is really your only way to get rid of heat. Now, if you're also in a very humid environment, that is going to be a big problem because evaporation of sweat is going to become much less effective because the water vapor pressure around you is going to be higher. Now, some things can help this. Things like wind can optimize the water vapor gradient and therefore help keep people more cool. And so you can think about those four mechanisms, conduction, convection, radiation, and evaporation, as the way in which our bodies cool themselves. Now, you've probably heard of things like the heat index, which tries to look at the total burden of heat uh, by looking at both the temperature and the humidity. But there's other factors that can contribute to heat stress. And for that reason, there's an even more powerful measurement tool uh, for looking at total heat stress, and that is the wet bulb globe temperature. Again, the wet bulb globe temperature. And what this does is it incorporates ambient air temperature, wind speed, relative humidity, and also solar radiation to calculate total heat load. This is often used by people like industrial hygienists, the military, and even people in athletics for sporting events to determine what amount of time outside 
in that environment is going to be appropriate and safe. Just to explain those things a little bit more, ambient air temperature is the actual degrees Celsius or Fahrenheit. Wind speed is how fast uh, the wind is blowing. Relative humidity is the amount of water vapor in the air. And solar radiation is basically the amount of infrared heat that's coming from the sun. So you can imagine if you're in the shade, that solar radiation is going to be minimal. But if you're in the blazing hot sun, it could cause you some serious problems and contribute significantly to the total heat load. Alright, so let's let's discuss a little bit about the physiology of what the body does when it's exposed to lots of heat. And, and you can have, again, uh, the environment causing your heat, or you can have the environment coupled with exertion causing you to be heated up. And that, that's called uh, exertional increase in temperature, which can lead to things like exertional heat exhaustion and heat stroke. And then, of course, the metabolic things can also heat you up. Things like infections. Remember, the hypothalamus controls the temperature of your body, and it has a set point that it tries to keep you at. And when you are put into an environment that's hotter, your body has to make physiologic changes to try and maintain that hypothalamic set point. This consists of things like increasing the blood flow to the skin. In fact, people can increase the blood flow to their skin by up to 8 liters per minute via sympathetic cutaneous vasodilation. For this reason, you also see, often see flushing in people's skin. I remember from being a little kid and going to a show about elephants that elephants have these big ears with a tremendous amount of vasculature. And one reason for that is that those ears bring the blood into close proximity with the surrounding air and they can flap those ears. So they can utilize wind, conduction, convection, and radiation to better release the heat in their bodies. But humans can do that too. But unfortunately, not with the ears, but just by bringing blood to the skin, but unfortunately as we age and our cardiovascular system becomes less robust, our ability to do that decreases, and as a result, older people are at an increased risk for problems related to heat. On top of the blood flow changes, we start sweating. We sweat, and then that sweat evaporates and cools us down. On top of this, we tend to reduce blood flow to the kidneys and to the gut in order to shunt more to the skin. And this is a safe thing in normal physiology, but if it becomes too pronounced or profound, can end up hurting those organs potentially. There are certainly many other physiologic responses to heat, but those are the big ones. Now, let's talk a little bit about story time. In 2003, there was a massive heat wave that hit Europe and it caused record-breaking temperatures for a prolonged period of time and during that heat wave at least 30,000 people died 
30,000 people died because of the temperature. Most of these people were elderly. Remember, elderly people have a reduced capacity to deal with heat. The crazy and sad thing is that it's believed that many, many, many of these deaths could have been prevented had elderly people simply been educated to get into a cool or cold bath three, four, five, six times throughout the day to help keep themselves cool. And that's something we need to remember. When these types of issues happen, active and engaging public health campaigns are so important because they can really save a lot of lives with minimal, uh, you know, with minimal input and cost. Another sad story is that in the United States, the reason why most babies and children die from, from heat stroke and heat illness is from vehicle entrapment. In fact, in 2019, 53 kids in the United States died from vehicle entrapment. Most of these cases are occurring simply because caregivers forget that the child or baby is in the car. Another reason, the second most common reason, is that children can sometimes get into a car and then are unable to get themselves out. And that has led to deaths as well. So some sad stories, but remember, tell old people to take a cold bath if their air condition fails in hot weather and Lock your cars when they're not attended. And if you see a child in a car in a hot environment, figure out immediately how to get that child out. You know, page page the mom overhead. Um, if it's hot and the child looks ill, call the fire department or break that window open and get that kid out of there. You could save their life. All right, let's talk about the symptoms of heat exhaustion and then heat stroke. We already covered this a little bit. Starting with heat exhaustion, people are going to experience fatigue, dizziness, headache, nausea, headache, piloerection, which is when the hairs of the body are kind of sticking up, tingling arms, and a flushed face. This is really common. Most people have experienced this at some point in their life if they've recreated or exerted themselves or worked outside. Now, if heat exhaustion is not dealt with. If people don't move to a cooler environment, if they don't rest, then it can progress to heat stroke. And the hallmark of heat stroke are the above symptoms of heat exhaustion plus neurological findings. And typically these neurological findings start with cerebellar symptoms. Things like ataxia, poor coordination, and dysarthria. Remember, ataxia is, is not is kind of walking funny or not walking well at all, and dysarthria is talking funny. After this, cerebral signs like irritability, aggression, delirium, and finally even seizure and coma can occur. If people remain comatose after euthermia is achieved, that tends to be a bad sign. Aside from the neurological issues, and typically, uh, you know, after, GI symptoms like nausea, vomiting, and diarrhea can develop. It's very common for the gut to become leaky uh, as it's hypoperfused. And so you can get leakage of gram-negative cell components like lipopolysaccharide released into the bloodstream. 
This can lead to a sepsis-like presentation. People can become hypotensive. They can literally look like they're in septic shock. Pulmonary symptoms are also common. Things like hyperventilation. This hyperventilation can lead to a respiratory alkalosis as you're blowing off more and more CO2. On top of that respiratory alkalosis, people typically will develop a metabolic acidosis. And that's due to increased glycolysis and lactic acidosis. Oxygen consumption increases dramatically in a hyperthermic state. And usually it increases O2 consumption, that is about 10%, for every 1 degree Celsius above euthermia, or the normal hypothalamic set set point. Hematologic derangements can also occur. White blood cell lines are often altered, and leukocytes are typically markedly elevated in heat stroke. Up to 20 or 30,000 can be common. Coagulation cascade abnormalities can also occur and are common in, in severe heat stroke, and you can get uh, DIC or disseminated intravascular coagulation, which of course is a bad prognosis. Enzymatic dysfunction is widespread, and we measure that with labs with things like creatinine kinase, lactate dehydrogenase, aminotransferase levels, ALT and AST in the liver, and bilirubin. All of those things will increase. These are often a result of cell death from apoptosis and necrosis, from direct heat injury, direct denaturization of proteins and enzymes. Creatinine kinase will typically peak 24 to 48 hours, and that's being released by muscles, muscle cells that are dying or being injured. Finally, and usually later on in the heat stroke illness, you can start to see renal and hepatic dysfunction. This tends to be you know, days after the initial insult. Um, and, and, and granted, that renal and hepatic dysfunction are actually occurring in real time when the heat stroke happens, but we start to really see the manifestations of that in the form of oliguria or anuria. People are urinating very little or not at all. Their liver functions are getting worse, and they can even go into full-on hepatic and renal failure as a result of heat stroke. So it's bad, and as we said, the mortality in heat stroke is high, up to 10% for all comers, and if you present with hypotension, up to 30%. All right, let's talk about a few of the risk factors for heat-related illnesses. The first one, as we've said multiple times now, is older age. These people have reduced capacity to sweat, and their cardiovascular system is often less robust, and as a result, they can't increase peripheral blood flow as well as younger individuals. Dehydration is an enormous modifiable risk factor for heat exhaustion and heat stroke. If you do not have enough fluid, you won't be able to sweat, and in a hot environment without sweat, you simply can't cool yourself. Things like diarrhea, vomiting, or any other process that causes fluid loss can lead to dehydration and can predispose you to heat illness. Intentional hypohydration goes along with this. So for certain sports, like fighting sports, wrestling, MMA, 
things where being lighter is is good, like being a jockey, you know, someone who rides a horse. These people are going to intentionally withhold water, and that can be very dangerous. And in general, should be discouraged though when you're trying to weigh in I you know it's, it's going to keep happening for like a fight or something impaired cooling can be caused by a number of different factors genetic abnormalities can cause problems with sweating things like ectodermal dysplasia can cause anhedrosis or a total lack of sweating people who have this genetic deficiency can sometimes not make sweat glands that is a huge predisposition to heat illness too much clothing. That one's easy. If you're you're dressed with too much stuff on, heat can't get off of you. And particularly if you've got coverings on your face and on your neck, that is going to be really bad. People, take your mask off outside. COVID is not going to infect you outside. It never would. And at this point with this heat, you might die with that mask on. About 50% of sweat is actually lost in the face and the scalp. And so for this reason, when athletes are first starting out practice in the heat of the summer, I would leave that helmet off for a couple days until they get some uh, acclimatization to the heat. Medications can also impair cooling. There's a number of them that can cause problems. Any of the stimulants are going to be an issue. So ephedrine, cocaine, methamphetamine. Antihistamines and other anticholinergics can also impair cooling because people don't sweat as much on them. Any anticholinergic is going to reduce sweating. And so you've got to be really careful about that. Medications like atropine, glycopyrrolate, are going to be a bad choice. And then, of course, the antihistamines, which have anticholinergic physiology, are available over-the-counter. People can get diphenhydramine over-the-counter, and that's going to be something people commonly take uh, when recreating outside, potentially, in the heat. Other medications like thyroid hormone and tricyclic antidepressants can increase heat production as well, predisposing to heat injury. And then certain medications like haloperidol and some other antipsychotics can decrease thirst, which can lead to dehydration and be a risk factor. Many skin problems are also a risk factor for heat illness. Eczema, psoriasis, poison ivy, burns, heat rash itself, (laughs) extensive carring can cause hypohydrosis or reduce sweating. These are going to make you more likely to have problems with heat. A lack of acclimatization to heat is a risk factor. If you all of a sudden go outside and you're not used to the heat, it's going to be tougher than if you've been doing things out in the heat daily for a few weeks. Poor fitness. If you're not in good shape, heat's more likely to get you. Lack of sleep. If people are sleep-deprived, heat is more detrimental to their body. There is seemingly nothing in the health (laughs) sector that is not improved with adequate sleep get your sleep people prioritize it autonomic dysfunction from chronic diseases like diabetes can predispose you to to heat illness mental health problems can predispose you especially things like eating disorders or bulimia when people are uh, intentionally vomiting that's going to lead to dehydration and potential problems obesity is the easy one 
if people have a layer of fat around their bodies that's that's quite large, that is going to be a tremendous insulation uh, for them, and it's going to make it hard for them to dissipate heat. Think about the whales in the ocean. They've got that tremendous layer of blubber to maintain heat as well as possible. And for people who have a tremendous amount of adipose tissue or fat, it's going to be hard for them to get cool. And then finally, alcohol. And really, alcohol dehydrates you. It inhibits antidiuretic hormone. When you pee, it looks like water. You get dehydrated, and you're more at risk. Interestingly, and not that surprising to me, having one episode of heat stroke does not appear to increase your chances of getting heat stroke in the future. That's a lot of risk factors. Most of those are modifiable things. We can think about that as prevention. Acclimatize yourself. Get out there in the hot temperature for a small amount of time initially and then build up slowly over 10 or 20 days. And that will reduce your chances of having heat problems tremendously. People can become acclimatized to heat and perform much better in it. If you're doing a race in Las Vegas and you're showing up from you know northern Canada for that race and you're running the next day, that may not be so good of an idea. Improving your fitness or just exercising more and being in better shape is going to help a lot as well. What's up, Full Scope listeners? If you are enjoying this content, if this content is bringing you value, please share it with your friends, loved ones, and everyone else. Post it online, on social media. Let your friends know. Have them subscribe. Put the word out there. That's all we really ask. And at the very least, give us a review and rate the podcast. Thanks so much. Let's get back to the show. Wearing the right clothing is so important. You know, we send out these football guys for two-a-days. You know, I was one of these kids. And we tell them to wear all these pads in the hottest part of the summer. Oftentimes in the hottest part of the day, <laughs> which uh, is not good. In the military, they have the same issues. They're, they're wearing body armor, protective armor, and that's going to be a problem. Sometimes clothing can be helpful, of course, in, the, uh, in protection from heat. For instance, firefighters, of course, wear a suit that limits the conduction and, and radiation of heat into the body. And so that can go both ways, of course, with, with clothing. It's also important for prevention that people just recognize the signs of heat exhaustion and heat stroke and take action immediately. Noticing that your friend is fatigued and not doing well and getting them into the shade and cooling them down before things get worse is really just a great strategy. And so so knowing those symptoms and acting early can be a big, big help to the people that you're with. Boop! All right, how do we diagnose heat illnesses? Well, really with the history and physical exam. You, you figure out what happened and you look at the person and you make the diagnosis. If you're in a hot environment, 
and someone that you find or someone that you're with becomes altered and you don't have another really good reason for that like you've been drinking a bunch of beer or something then you should really strongly suspect heat stroke and act accordingly and uh, you know try and cool that person it's really good and important to try and get a temperature on people that you think may have heat exhaustion or heat stroke because that can be important for prognostic information. And of course, the, the best temperature readings come from internal sources. And the most readily available in, in the pre-hospital setting is usually a rectal temperature. Now that's kind of invasive, and so most people might be more uh, interested in doing an oral temperature. But just know that that oral temperature will typically be about one degree Celsius cooler than a rectal temperature. All right, let's talk about treatment. Treatment for heat exhaustion is pretty easy. You're going to stop the activity if it's going on, move to a cooler environment, take off clothing, and initiate isotonic hydration. So give that person oral fluids, give that person salts and electrolytes, and cool them down. Typically, we shoot for like one liter, possibly up to two liters an hour uh, of trying to hydrate someone orally. For things like heat cramps, you're going to want to utilize uh, hydration, electrolytes, and stretching. For heat edema, you can try things like elevation, rest. Compression stockings can often be helpful in this setting, though that's going to reduce the ability to to get heat off of the body. For heat syncope or passing out, you're going to want to, of course, rule out scary causes. But if everything really fits, I, I don't think I would be too worried about it. Like if someone's outside, they're like, yeah, I just got so hot, I became sweaty, I got really lightheaded and dizzy, and I passed out, and then I woke up right away. That's phasovagal syncope. I don't think that person needs to be hospitalized. But if, if, if something else is worrying to, worrisome to you, like you think they may have some sort of arrhythmia or something else may be going on, you may want to pursue further workup and look into other causes. And then finally, heat stroke. This is the really, really scary one. And of course, syncope is scary if it's due to something scary, but oftentimes in the heat, it's just going to be pretty benign syncope. And for heat stroke, because people can get really sick, the first thing you need to think about, of course, are ABCs, airway, breathing, and circulation. If people are unstable, they need to be stabilized. And if they don't have a, a heart rate or a heartbeat and, and they're not breathing, you're going to want to initiate CPR. After this, if they're, if they're with it enough, you're going to want to start with the same stuff you're going to do for heat exhaustion. Stop the activity. Move them to a cool place. Take off the clothes and give them isotonic hydration. But you've got to take this a step further. You want to actively cool these heat stroke patients aggressively. And the best way is by immersing them in cold water. This is by far the best strategy. I've looked at lots of studies. And if you can take somebody and put them into a cold pool or cold body of water, that is going to be the best choice. Now, if you're in the wilderness, this might be a river or a stream or a lake nearby. You want to, of course, be careful about currents and drowning and other injuries, but get them in that water. It could save their life. 
if you have IV capabilities, you're going to want to start an IV on them, and you're going to want to start pretty aggressive hydration. Typically, if you have cold fluid, that, of course, is going to be what you're going to want to use, cooled fluid, and a lot of ambulances do carry that. I would give somebody a couple, depending on their size, of course, I would give somebody a couple liters, maybe three liters initially, and then continue to hydrate them fairly aggressively until they're making good urine. Usually the what we shoot for is a half a milliliter per kilogram per hour. But there's different protocols for fluid rehydration. I would say if I got a 70 kilogram adult who came in with heat stroke, I would want to give them, you know, two and a half liter bolus and then continue them on 250 milliliters per hour until I felt like they were really well hydrated uh, and, and, and looking pretty good from that standpoint. On top of that, if, if people's hearts aren't working and if their blood pressure remains low in spite of good hydration, you might need to think about using some inotropy um, or some vasopressors to help augment cardiac uh, function and peripheral vascular constriction. Vas or vascular constriction. But you have to be really, really careful because one, if they're not well hydrated, you could really damage their tissues. And two, if you give someone a, a, a vasopressor, you're going to impair the peripheral blood flow because those blood vessels are clamping down. That's going to impair their ability, impair their ability to cool. And so even though in some rare instances you may want those just because the blood pressure is so low, it's pretty dangerous, and if possible, you should avoid those. I mean, the reality is if you're dealing with someone who you've given a lot of fluid they're in, in heat stroke, you've cooled them, and they're still very hypotensive. That's a really, really bad sign. You're going to want to avoid any anticholinergics. So anything like atropine or glycopyrrhate is going to inhibit the ability to sweat, and that's going to be bad. Cardiac monitoring is important for these patients. And I'm not a big fan of telemetry in general. I usually, uh, it just annoys me and, and scares me and doesn't often tell me things to do. But because arrhythmia is so common, particularly while people are hot, but also afterwards due to continued electrolyte abnormalities, you're going to want to watch this person. You know, this is a young person. If they go into arrhythmia, you're going to want to jump on that real quick and code them back into a perfusing rhythm. Don't forget to replete electrolytes and glucose. People are going to be deficient on things like magnesium, potassium, sodium, glucose, other, uh, other essential minerals. Make sure you replete those along with fluid. Avoid antipyretics, so things like aspirin, Tylenol, and ibuprofen. These are not going to lower the temperature like they would for a fever caused by infection. You're, one, you're going to want to actively cool them with something like whole body immersion into cold water or by drenching them with water and fanning them or by other more sophisticated techniques that probably don't work better and probably cost a lot more. It's important for EMS to take a good history because if this person is showing up to the hospital unconscious, we're, we're flying blind. So EMS should figure out what happened, how long the person was out, doing something, how long they were altered or, or deranged, and then pass that information along to the, the doctors or providers at the hospital. If somebody's having seizures, you're going to want to give them benzodiazepines. Ativan is, or lorazepam, I'm sorry, is going to be your treatment of choice. 
And of course, if they keep seizing, I would probably favor giving them propofol and intubating them. Uh, in general, you're going to want to continue your active cooling, which is the most important thing of all the things we've talked about, until the person is less than 39 degrees Celsius. If somebody is adequately cooled and they remain comatose, I would really think about utilizing a hypothermia protocol like the ones we use for post-MI comatose people. I think that could potentially help considering all the cellular damage and necrosis and, uh, and possibility for badness at physiologic temperature, but that requires more study and, and, and it will be interesting to see what comes out of that research because there are some people looking into that. People have tried a number of different medications to see if they can help with, uh, with, with heat stroke and heat problems, and really most have been unsuccessful. Dantrolene is an interesting one. It uh, basically decreases the amount of calcium release from muscle cells or myocytes, but probably other cells as well. And that's a really common treatment used in malignant hypothermia and uh, possibly uh, neural neuroleptic malignant syndrome, or NMS, uh, but hasn't really been too helpful in heat stroke, or, or at least there's been mixed results. People often consider antibiotics in heat stroke, and that's because people often present looking like they're in septic shock. And because of that um, leaky gut and those bacterial components getting into the blood, people are, people are shocky, like, like in an infection way almost. And so people have considered antibiotics, but I don't think those are a regular go-to. And I think at this time, they're not generally recommended. People are also looking into the use of dexamethasone and activated protein C for the treatment of heat stroke. And it will be interesting to see if those have, uh, have some benefit. I really think that if they do have some benefit, it will likely be marginal. So kind of the pillars of treatment for heat stroke are cool the patient down, get them into a cold water bath or drench them with water and fan them and move them into a cold area as quickly as possible. Hydrate them. If oral hydration is what you have, use isotonic oral fluids. That means a, a balanced like salt, sugar, re oral rehydration solution. Or if you have IV, start that going. That's, that's probably the preferred uh, method if you do have it. Avoid antipyretics. These medications generally work by inhibiting prostaglandin formation, which lower the body's thermoregulatory set point. This is not helpful if the heat is coming from an outside source and not from metabolism or something else like that. And then get the person to a hospital if they're in heat stroke. Heat stroke is dangerous. Um, it's got a high mortality, and those people need to be observed, and they need to be under uh, maximal medical care. Okay, prognosis. What, uh, what kind of lets us know if the person is likely to do bad or good? Well, the first thing is the maximum temperature and the duration of temperature. And of course, the higher the temp and the longer people were exposed to it, the more likely they are to have problems and the more likely they are to pass away. Temperatures greater than 41 degrees Celsius or 105.8 degrees Fahrenheit are bad. Other prognostic indicators include hyperkalemia. If people's potassiums are elevated, that means cells are probably dying 
and that's a bad sign. Acute renal failure, and then of course uh, liver injury with elevations in ALT and AL AST. Persistence of coma after normal thermia or, or normothermia is achieved is a bad sign. And then on peripheral smear, if you see signs of red blood cell apoptosis, like cell blebbing, cell blebbing, shrinking, and asymmetry, that's a bad sign. However, in spite of all these bad signs, there's been people, and in fact the majority of people, have near total recovery even after greater than 24 hours of coma. Some, pa some of these patients may take months to recover, but it is possible, and uh, you should stick with it. Long term, though, patients who undergo heat stroke do have increased risk of heart, liver, and kidney disease. So it appears that even when they do fully recover, it does predispose to future, future diseases in some of those target organs. What about return to sport? When can people go back to sport after, say, something like exertional heat stroke occurs? Well, there's no real agreement on this subject, and you see things all over the board. In my opinion, if the person feels well enough and ready to participate, if all of their labs have normalized, then they're probably okay to gradually return to sport. Like a concussion, though, avoiding a second episode or a second uh, episode of heat stroke is essential. You don't want to send somebody back in, you know, right after heat stroke and then have them get another of the same injury right away. That's going to lead to bad problems. The American College of Sports Medicine actually has a pretty good set of recommendations regarding return to sport. And so I'm just going to read you what they say because at the end of the day, you should probably choose them instead of me. I mean, they, they've, this is what they do all the time. And as you know from me, I'm full scope. I do everything. Refrain from exercise for at least seven days following release from medical care. So you get discharged from the hospital, rest for at least seven days. You're supposed to follow up about one week after the incident for physical examination and laboratory testing and imaging if needed. And hopefully those look good. So, so basically retest labs and if imaging's needed, retest that a week later. When you're cleared for return to sport, you're going to begin exercise in a cool environment and gradually increase the duration, intensity, and heat exposure over a couple weeks. This is basically acclimatization. Okay, everybody, that is heat-related illnesses. Some of the key points. Stay hydrated. Drink plenty of fluids if you're in a hot environment. You need those fluids to sweat, evaporate that sweat, and cool you down. Get in good shape and slowly start exercising or working in hot environments to acclimatize yourself. Do not jump straight into a hot environment and expect to run a marathon or, thing, or things are not going to go well, even if you're well trained to run a marathon at more normal temperatures. Recognize the symptoms of heat exhaustion, thirst, fatigue, exhaustion. It's even in the name. 
and get that person to a colder area, rehydrate them, and try and cool them off. If somebody has those symptoms of heat exhaustion and also altered mentation or altered coordination, that is what we call heat stroke, and that is an emergency. You need to cool that person down right away, and the best way to do it is with cold water immersion. Heat stroke is very severe and deadly. It kills about 10% of people that get it. And for that reason, anyone who develops heat stroke should be transferred to a hospital or medical facility. Stay cool out there, my friends. The world appears to be on fire right now. Thank you so much for listening to the Full Scope Podcast and investing in your health. I'm Dr. Bill Randenberg. If you're enjoying the content, please rate, review, and share this content with all of your friends online and all your social media platforms. Please understand that this podcast is not intended to treat, diagnose, or cure your specific medical condition. This podcast does not create any type of doctor-patient relationship between myself, Dr. Brandenburg, and you, the listener. If you do need help with your life, with your health, with anything regarding your longevity or performance, please check out wondermedicine.com, our longevity and performance program is the best in the world and is ready to help you right now today become the best possible individual you can be thanks bye-bye Pew.